You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Lisa. I'm wearing uh, my glasses for the first time uh, with lights here, so I can't really see you all. (laughs) But it was great. I I managed to meet some of the young uh, writer delegates uh, just before we started. So it's great that that kind of thing is going on, you know, that people are supporting young people who are creating, you know, it's really important. It's important that the likes of Aura Screen or Ina Heron uh, exists and the likes of this festival exists so that people who create, people who write, people who want to write uh, can get the opportunity to write, to perform, to hear and be inspired, uh, hopefully by people so to create stuff. Um, so, uh, um, so uh, I'm just, uh, I, I'll do uh, a poem maybe at the beginning and a poem uh, maybe at the end just to, to break the ice, I suppose. Um, uh, my son Nisha is here uh, and he's going to uh, make some nice sounds on the guitar. Um, so, Tosnoi me le don, ashkri me aguina er Nola Nikonomura. I'm going to start with a poem that I wrote in memory of Nola Nikonomura, a friend who died about nine years ago now, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do here today, but we may learn Don to let raw, I guess, Hanamer and Don Shaw, I guess, for Ahernola, Liam Boss, Bitter, Shachtanahan, Nola's father, Liam died um, uh, about 10 days ago. And uh, Liam, you know, these people that kind of inhabit lots of different spaces and are everywhere where you go and are just these giants. Uh, so Liam was one of those. Um, but then the Untach of Ion, the screen or the Ion, the Rani of Ion, the Far Clachten, the Oil, the Spree of Ion, then the Untach of Ion, is Queen Lam Hain, the City Globe Honorah, a Geishaklesh, Dirk Ginchen Gnash Gale, Rodegan Gnar of the Harlad on the Vishen of Ochlinbjog. I remember sitting in Club of Honor years ago as I was uh, 18, probably, and I was looking at this giant of a man, and he just t- told a normal little story about some adventure that he had when he was uh, a little boy. And I just couldn't believe his way with words, I suppose. And it really inspired me to try and speak better. <laughs> Maybe my English doesn't show that, but to try and speak better, to try and make words work for you, make words mean what you mean, make them say what you want to say. Uh, and so Liam was one of those people. He inhabited so many different worlds worlds, and inspired so many people. So I'm going to say uh, this poem, which I wrote for his daughter. It's called Curtius, which uh, is um, description, I suppose. I was nervi maashkriyev, vis a queen of er Liam, mar when I wrote this, uh, which was basically written a month before Nola died, um, it was in a, a, a wedding, and the morning after a wedding, we were in this garden, and Liam was there just telling stories. And, uh, and his whole family were there telling stories. And it was just a wonderful moment, so the sun was shining, um, and Nola was there and she was taking part in it all. And then a month later, she was gone. So that's life, you know, that's, that is life. So um, this is called Curtius. Mi gala sara kurachtu Ali feigrian da vahasa ngardin ir vanishe 
Trish Bautabiog Kollete, Shing Sitte Schieschen Burlat, a Gierhogger, Dinish to doing her Harle Le Dienidate. Marahaig and Dochtur, the Folloid, a Suskodown, Camera Tube, Gokoratiach, Gerhiol, Harnashias, her Valer Troi, Gavur Ryark, her Head of the Roha, is Trish a Nuchabiog, Ger Harring and Tube, a Mach Gereg, is Gerhurishgig. Aulisker Gnachit and Sele Nach Father Elevi Ignate de Kena. You mean a door to Ling nor to Lesh? I won't sing again. Dog the kind ball of me is a rebel lawer. Neil or a true of each, a hidden curses, er harla. Is Hinis sheer, Dini Hikarablian a gummy rivishin. Tourish the Hinnish avis urugut. It hasivalar ular easlig. Is Derry jail a arshigut as gach orlachted hri. Is legach came and scaffold suas a hogan far there her. Leg shem macht in the winter. Is we gach glech, is gach came, maher came, aher came, drifur came, a hurt hig ardan and vosh. Migolas are a kuluch too. Frab to her frab chishla and the ardeen ear vanishe. Is lig to sheer her chahir grain and vehev. A pasquefer is shaw litig a bale the chlevert. Is trash bout to be a kulata. Went to franga frankisha as teda de roha. Le curtius her hora cafe cool chlushte, idrun garçon, maoneste, is customer mana, da yente, is her fuckle square and ear, si bien place, madame, a gardishing. Is dogmer slan and sonagut, dar a frihoil gacunert, is the winter more himpalert. Is Dineen, Shabli in a dish, Mehadin Nisha McNeil. So um, I heard somebody say that um, death and love are the only two reasons that people write poetry. But uh, this, this night will show to us that that is not true. <laughs> but we start with death and go to life. Um, so in here in the night, Livia Bartolome Virgil. Please welcome Livia Bartolome Virgil. Livia has always considered herself a storyteller. Creativity and imagination are a key part of her life 
and she is always pursuing an artistic quest, musical or literary. She normally writes with the Ink Slingers on Saturdays and is proud to have participated in the group's anthology this year. Please welcome Livia, please. So this piece is called Christine. I put some rouge on my lips, looking at my reflection on the mirror, checking that the lipstick is applied evenly. Tonight, I want to look perfect. This is my farewell gift to the place that has been my home for the last 20 years. The show will start in 15 minutes, so I exit my dressing room. I walk to the backstage and think about all the memories contained between these walls. I saw you for the first time in this theatre. I was just a child back then. I remember being a little bit bored until you came on the stage and faced the audience. I had never heard anything as beautiful and as powerful as your voice. You captivated me. There was something in you that talked directly to me. From that day on, I begged my dad to take me back to this theatre. I needed to see you, to talk to you. I wanted to be like you. You liked my energy and enthusiasm, and you asked me to sing for you. I was embarrassed. I felt that I was undeserving, but you were gentle and patient, and saw my potential. You became my mentor, my friend. You told me all the secrets of the trade. You supported me the day of my debut. I was so nervous that I was afraid that no sound would come from my mouth. But you told me to take a deep breath and to start my song whenever I felt ready. So many characters have lived with me during these 20 years. I have transformed myself into different women. I have laughed, cried, loved, hated, lived, died. They have been my companions, different skins I wore and took off every night. I have been a young opera singer torn between two lovers, a young girl incarcerated by an evil judge who dreams, whose dream is to fly away like a bird, a bride who longs to know who her father is, an ambitious actress who wanted to seduce and manipulate a powerful politician, a mother who gave her life for her son, a flower girl turned into a proper lady, a factory worker who longed for that youth love she once had, a veteran dancer who sees her dancing days coming to an end and doesn't regret what she did for love, a young woman who is torn between the, her loyalty towards her community and the man she loves a witch who is despised by everyone for being different, a woman whose desire is to become a mother. I have loved each of them for different reasons. They have taught me about strength, love, hope, sacrifice, honesty, mercy, forgiveness. I have seen parts of myself in them, things I loved, things I hated and had to accept. All of them had walked beside me even in my darkest times and reminded me the reasons why I loved this life when I was about to give up. I started believing that my profession was my outlet, a beautiful fantasy that allowed me to keep going. But it was actually the place where I found myself, the place where I conquered and learned to live with my fears, where I found my support and my strength. But I'm afraid that these memories will disappear as soon as the theater is demolished. And when this place disappears, so will you. I feel overwhelmed by these sad memories, but the show must go on. It always goes on, no matter how, life, how hard life beats you up. Once you are on stage, you must play for your part and smile, smile, even if your heart is breaking, even if you feel like you are dying. 
The stage director looks at me. It's time. I hear the audience cheering, and when I get on stage, they all fall silent. I look at my audience, unknown faces who look at me expectantly. But tonight, I won't sing for them. I will sing for you, as my farewell, as an appreciation of everything you have taught me and done for me over the years. And I hope that my voice will resonate over these walls, when, when these walls have turned into debris, and that these people will remember about this marvelous place full of magic long after it's gone. I smile as music starts playing. Wishing you were somehow here again. Wishing you were somehow near. Sometimes it seemed, if I just dreamed, somehow you would be here. Oh, that was lovely. <laughs> that was really lovely. Um, uh, music is the only way, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I suppose places of creation, theatres, auditoria, you know, they're great. Uh, there's a book that David Byrne uh, from Talking Heads, or used to be with Talking Heads, wrote. Um, came out a couple of years ago and he describes why certain theatres or creative spaces work. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, how music works, that's it. <laughs> um, it was just there. Um, how music work, works, it's uh, really fascinating, you know. Um, I suppose people really is ultimately why music works or how music works, but uh, depending on the venue, the size of it, how high the ceiling is, where the jacks is, if the bar is too noisy nearby, you know. Um, but creative spaces are great. Uh, I remember seeing Arthur a lot in the old project uh, um, with Rough Magic, uh, an awful lot of productions with Rough Magic. Uh, and you wrote some pieces for Rough Magic as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, and I'm uh, very fond of memories of the old uh, Rough Magic. Uh, uh, or sorry, the old uh, project, uh, because I suppose it was full of Rough Magic <laughs> and boldness. Uh, it was a, an asbestos-filled old... I don't know what it was. Was it a shoe factory or some printers' work, printers? Uh, and it was awful, but it was brilliant. Um, and a new building is in its place now, and it's uh, perfectly fine. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh, so now uh, we're going to go to our first young writer delegate, um, Ruth Ennis, uh, is studying children's literature in Trinity College Dublin. She has written for children's books. Books Ireland, the University Observer, the UCD Caveat Lecture, the Dublin Book Festival and the Blue Nib. She aspires to be a children's author and has a particular interest in poetry and short stories. She currently works as the marketing and publicity officer for the O'Brien Press, which is a great place to be uh, because they uh, work a lot on children's books, don't they? Yes. Okay, so please welcome Ruth, please. Hello, um, thanks very much for coming. Um, I just have three short poems for you. First one is called The Skating Rink in Belfast. Knees straight, arms bent, I am beckoned to the edge of the rink to receive advice I did not ask for. In 1960, he is awkward and eager on the ice as he approaches the girl on white skates. His orange reflects a warning to her. Don't get distracted, don't get in the way. She leads him skating backwards on the smooth surfaces while he holds her hands and scrapes up what is behind him. 
Dancing on unsure footing, he offers her a chance to teach and he follows her blindly. Fearless and steadfast, she steadily drains the orange from his skates and bleeds a white confidence into him. His partner unties the laces of her boots and passes from one life to the next. His memory of frozen time becomes forgotten after a fall renders him immobile. He visits the rink each week, watching the orange and white blades blend into a pale sunset he longs to have. Having learned, having taught, he beckons me to the edge of the rink to offer advice I did not ask for. I listen and skate, knees bent and arms straight. Uh, this one is called Leaving Home for Christmas. It's three in the morning when I drive home from work. I pull into my space at the back of the house and stare up into the sky. My warm breath bruising the cold air as the only barrier between a clear sky and a thousand stars. My breath's taken. I try to take it back with a photo from my phone, but I cannot capture the fine, finite flashes of light. So I stare a bit longer before I go to bed. We're putting up the Christmas decorations today, but don't worry if you're busy packing. That won't fit into the car. You'll end up having to make two trips. School bag in hand, she leaves home in the early morning. Call us anytime you need us, anytime. Projections. Neon lights from bridges and snowflakes onto buildings. I take my photos, plenty of them, and I share them with her. She says she loves them. It's midnight and I stare up to the sky. The air isn't as cold, but I can see no stars. Thank you. Uh, this last one is called An Ode to the Audience. To the brave souls sitting in the front row, you will constantly be kept up on your toes, always saying yes, it's rude to say no when you are asked to participate in the show. I'm kidding. To the brave souls in the back who think, oh, I don't need to keep track of what's happening on stage, pick up the slack. It's too late for you to sneak out of the crack of the back door. Ah, to the latecomers with no cushion seat to rest your bum or a pillar to lean on, please join the fun, but in great discomfort. You should have just run. To those who can't turn off their mobile phones and still has that Nokia ringtone, Causing everyone here to snicker and moan, you think, I should have just stayed at home. To those who were dragged here tonight to watch a bunch of poets, you were right. We're lovers, not haters. We don't want to fight. Going to sulk on the car ride home? You might. To those who love a Q&A at the end of every event, you really do spend your hand up in the air looking to defend that point you made in an argument with a friend. To the wonderful staff and volunteers by the sides for lending us your ears. And when the room empties and finally clears, you can go get that well-deserved pint. Cheers. To the families and friends who support us for building, helping us build a fort where creativity can be without a court of judgment. You see, you are a safe port. To everyone here in this room who finds solace in listening to the tunes of us lost darlings singing to the moon. This sweet community you belong to. Thank you.
But thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, that was lovely, really. Uh, and again, music's cre- creeping in. There's a bit of a theme going on. It's Queenham Hain, Vegan Rink, Scott Hall, Sacharnon, a Dolphin's Barn. Does anybody remember the skating rink in Dolphin's Barn? Yes. You know, 13 and. Um, oh no, my son's here. I can't be saying these things. Um, <laughs> it's where you went on dates and things. Um, in the skating rink in Dolphin's Barn and fell on your arse. Well, I did, anyway. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much for those. Gramil Mahagat. Agus anish bugam idragini chia dinele. Jensen Byrne, um, nu Shansen Vrin, is a trans and bilingual activist from po- uh, and poet from Tala in Dublin. Uh, a graduate of Trinity and DCU, they hold a, B- a BA in Ancient History and World Religions and an MA in International Relations. Among other themes, their writing explores relationships, gender, grief, loss, and the environment, which is a lot. Um, so big, uh, big chance a raw dawn in Elge doing August dawn in Ireland, aha. Grimil Magab, could you give faulter of chance in the hell? Digwit, I may host you in the Madon to Elge. Hello, I'll be starting with my poems in Irish. On Tascamore. Sus ig taskmar bohar na brinna, ta unlucked fecanta, gone lucked, ak lucked an oga, ig spree agus ig gol in aka an luck, le cani in a lava tashi de goira, goira a rihin a mock, a iron cune, kusula suvnis anishka, a dahring a scrad, ta cooked fi anishka shah, nilme leshkul no lag, ak nilme kolader la ishka sucker, in a year, nil ainrud fock to dum, ak strong strong share er shulod, ak grassan cart clore, is stuck a lea, agus cupla canny full of bruta, brusker spree at ak scarta, o bro matilak. Kisinger Vishak, Buktanot Cree. Ola Mishke Biaha imalaba, ta tartarm, ta bronarm, being twig moga, a goira, ta sconer urt vi noiradaher, naher nieva a dull tree de kulkaher, bomb, bug, bucked, and dulak. Cade and lucked tau, ak scale derke, and scrad, a coney in a bailedis and pubble. Kailantu, Kailantu may os ordogs a gugger. Kerdata gesh da kesh da wan os da kor, a rish dogs a rish, a motlet juk. I was by Kandera Guelga, my last Irish one. Equina. To blossom banshee arm, bloss down new meal agus kias, er malipa garv agus myangagar. To make eerie quina and banshee, neil auna kesh dama. Lanan she maklan de good dovak, good jung valta. Toshi equina is jock ray durka, churin shee, conan shee, shrilin she brown in a year, marmisha. To imagush faltok, conarjura a mask, conquina lakela, I was condera a curlish and bircha. Okay, and on to my English poems. Um, so this one is called We Speak the Feminine in Tongues and Shadows. Part one, Shadows. Skahuk, patron shadow, warrioress, warrior was, who taught Satanta to be a hound, in darkness, staff raised, she follows. A ghostly witch, a kyluk, infamy and renown. A vulva becomes volcanic vitriol. Deny, 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 obscure. Who are we in the shadows if we stay here? Part two, Feminine. 
Moving on to Magdalena, a patroness of women, fallen women, you needed backstory to stand among men. I am your grandchild, your son, your daughter, the thong in between. I wash your feet, bathe them in milk and ointment and praise Jesus that you didn't die in the end. I'm tired of that trope, the rope, the noose, the hatch, the snap and the crack, the crooks of the cross, the pyre and burning of loss. Part three, tongues. Kalima follows further, tongue out, delectable dark mother, loving hope giver watching me sleep. Injury, sex, sweat, you swallowed it all in time and history and infamy. All we are and ever will be is scorched earth become fertile by you, a garland of skulls waving arms in triumph, compassionate ruthlessness, you are every woman I have ever loved. Burned out and rebuilt a pilgrimage of destruction that speaks of all things feminine. And this is my last poem, unless I have more time. It's called uh, Ceiling Tiles. I've sat through a dozen funerals, counting ceiling tiles and following rhythmic hymns, listening to the echoing cadence of the priest's practice somber intonations. But I never thought of those that stare at the casket as a container of love, a personality boxed and sealed in mahogany base. Their exuberance turned to eternal repose as grief and loss as grief and loss cripple and bounce off its varnished surface. I did not think of such different stairs until I found myself counting ceiling tiles as I prayed for his personality never to be boxed, until I thought of his former presence counting ceiling tiles in tandem, until I realized that no numerological equation can save a person and that I can count ceiling tiles in the hopes of an even meaning, but one day he will stop counting with me and all his vibrancy will be contained, restrained, a forceful condensing of a father's energy into a little matchbox that holds my gaze. We lean in Shane McGowan on the Pogues for his ceiling tiles. Shane McGowan from the Pogues had a song about ceiling tiles or staring in the bed, looking up at the tiles. I suppose that's where our, we're, we're usually, our brain is usually somewhere else when you're looking at ceiling tiles, I suppose, or you're kind of goofing, or you're imagining. Um, there was a lovely line, Scrad the Choni in Melodis and Fubble. God, that really uh, jumped out at me. I thought it was great. So, Gramil Mahagat Shanson, Ani Asar Fad. Bugamadiraginish Gadin Kedin Ella, Aoife Riach is Dinah Dinah Young Writer Delegacy. Aoife is a feminist, which wonderful, an aspiring chill person, even better, uh, with a master's degree in gender and women's studies. She has worked as a writer for Bust magazine in New York, and her poetry is upcoming in Nothing Substantial and Not For You's zine, Being Is Believing. She's currently studying sexuality and se sexual health education in DCU, and is a finalist in the 2019 InterVarsity Poetry Slam. Kurigi Falter of Eiffel Everdale. Um, I'm going to do um, three, hopefully, short poems. Um, <clears throat> this one is called uh, Priorities. When the tides come pounding on the glass front office block, overwatering the potted plant till its leaves blister and burst and mouldering the freshly vacuumed carpet, who will we scold for opening the window? Wading through sea swaddled stationery, bobbing past the laminator and swamped boxes of headed paper, in pours our inexorable end. 
refusing to grasp the gravity of the gravity that floats filing cabinets along the ocean floor of polystyrene cups and post-its still, my head snaps up. Strong to the scald of flesh between your jumper and jeans as you reach and carve the waterline, your shoulder thrust a glass, forcing it shut, stemming the flow, granting us a sodden surplus minute. Um, and this. Okay. <laughs> um, this poem is about Emily Dickinson. Um, Emily Dickinson um, was a queer writer. A lot of queer writers, their queerness kind of gets written out of history, along with a lot of other things about Emily Dickinson that were written out of history. So this is my poem to her. Um, it's called In Emily Dickinson's Bedroom. Emily is rolling her eyes in the room where she died. Splashes of September sun on her white dress. I am a pilgrim to Amherst on a Greyhound bus and I have the tour guide to myself. It comforts me, the guide says, to know she found love late in life. They found fragmented letters to a man her father's age. I am lingering by Emily's bed beneath the arch of her eyebrow. Under the harvest moon in her sloping shady garden, I recite with a group of strangers every word she left to us. I am thinking, maybe she didn't use titles because the language hadn't yet been invented. Sarcastic, Sagittarius, her hair a blazing sunset long before colour photography, I swear to her, I'll never again picture you in monochrome. My new friend in a neckerchief is a psychic, he says. She's here with us now, in her candlelit room. Can anyone else hear her spectre whispering, Susan, Susie, my darling Sue? Pencil is dispensable. It comes equipped with its own self-destruct button and how many clever men edited and shredded her into the great American poet? How many women were locked up, remembered as reclusive? Wine drunk on a bench now, Emily sits beside me in companionable silence. Fairy lights and garlands pierce the cricket sun dark of fall in small town Massachusetts. I'm glad you're here, I tell her. It's eerie out here at night. She looks at me and laughs, ghosts. She reassures me, are just the things we never say, and I said everything. It still counts, she says, when no one is listening. I walk home haunted. Girls from the university spill out from bars onto the moonlit street. Alone. In a and b off Pleasant Street, I find a notebook, I scribble a vow. I am naming all my poems after you, my love. I am writing your name in pen. And this last one, um, it's called uh, Panel Woman. You are one-sixth of a couch made for two. Bleed out your wounds on this library floor to some modest applause. And when the proposition's tossed over to you, after the fact, be self-deprecating about your craft and laugh and find out a half is equal to two when no one's timing you, but we're timing you. I'm not trying to create a gender dichotomy, but none of these men choke on their own unticked boxes before spewing their jokes and their anecdotes and farces. And if I wanted to see men kiss each other's arses, I would have just stayed in the first four years of my 20s. <laughs> and there's plenty of space set aside for that in this diverse and exciting program of events we call this uninhabitable planet. And you didn't plan it this way, to be woman's representative on Earth, but here you are. You are the hands lowered in capitulation to the more of a comment than it is a question. You are the silent girl faces in the crowd. Woman on a panel, you own the floor. Yours are the befores and the one minute afters. Shout your unpolished thoughts to the rafters. Interrupt an old man and do it with glee. Panel woman, you are who we came here to see.
That was a great performance, really, really. That's, uh, that's the way to, well, one of the ways to present your, your work is really good. It's, God, it's great, great. Um, so, first, I'm going to go to the Grand Kyoto. We're going to have some music uh, now. Not that we haven't had some before, but um, Joan Healy uh, is here, and Joan is from Kildare. Uh, she writes so uh, songs and poetry. Last year, she shared her work in the International Literary Festival in the Liquor Rooms. This is her third performance in Taking the, uh, the Mic. Um, tonight, she's sharing a song she wrote herself, which is a sing along. So, we can all join in. excited about the sing-along part. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to say thanks, first of all, for my parents for coming along, my sister and neighbour up there. It's a long way from Kildare. <laughs> and the song is called You and I, and you can join in on the You and I part. It's very easy. I like Orient. I love Elvis. I Dance to Nina Simone. I even like Miley Cyrus, but only when I'm alone. For a while it was fun, sunshine days. We were walking and talking, living better ways. Questions with answers, darkness to light. Take my hand and follow me. To the light, you and I, me and you, you and I, me and you and I, me and you, you and I, me and That's the part you can join in next time. Okay. <laughs> As each week goes by, I feel much better. I write down how I feel and put it in a letter. Maybe you can read it or even understand. When I open my heart and put it in my own hand, you and I, me and you, you and I, me and you and I, me and you. For the future, who knows what it will bring? All I want is enough air in my lungs to sing. Maybe by this time next year, or maybe in five, you'll be happily moved on, or just happy to be alive. You and I, me and you, you and I, me and you and I, me and you. I love Elvis, I dance to Nina Simone I even like Miley Cyrus, but only when I'm alone Hey, hey, hey. 
Um, thank you very much, uh, Joan. Uh, that was lovely. Uh, I like your uh, name dropping of, of bands. I like the bands. What's the Miley Cyrus thing? Is that are you afraid to admit it, or uh, or is it just a, a personal relationship you have with Miley? Um, that was gorgeous that was gorgeous and thank you for getting us to sing along Um, so now we're going to have another one of our young uh, writer delegates Uh, James Hudson was born in Dublin raised in France then raised a bit more in Dublin okay Um, that's interesting Um, James Hudson is a speculative fiction writer exploring why we feel the way we feel about the human body Uh, He is currently completing his MA in Creative Writing in UCD and would like his dissertation to be a first step towards remedying... I can't say that word. Remedying, I know. Remedying the dearth of transgender fiction in Ireland. Please welcome James. I think there's a couple people from AMA here and I can't see them, so can you like yell so I can stare at you? Okay, I'll be looking like right there. Um, I was going to read something different initially, but I actually wrote this pretty much this week, uh, inspired by feelings on trans visibility, priority and responsibility that came up during the festival. So I wrote a sad little superhero story. I can't take you home, Ronan says to the man in his arms. His name is Danny and he's afraid of heights. So he spent the entire flight scrambling every few seconds for a tighter grip around Ronan's body. There is a universe where Danny did not just narrowly escape a hard beating outside a gay bar, and Danny's body is still living in that universe. Ronan hasn't the heart to say how tender his chest is since surgery, and how much it hurts under the pointed pressure of Danny's nose. The euphoria of being saved by a vigilante has passed, and now Danny seems annoyed that he's tired, like he would like to be excited about meeting a real superhero, but he can't find the place to draw the energy from. Ronan wants to tell him it's okay, nobody is ever excited once they get in the air, but he has never spoken in costume before tonight, and he can still hear the words, I can't take you home, over and over in his head, a little higher every repetition, a little softer, a little rosy. When they touch down behind the locked gates of Stevens Green, Ronan releases the tension that keeps his spine upright and staggers into a stiff varnished bench not far from the lakefront. It isn't a heroic look, but he's already let his guard down in front of Danny and he doesn't have the strength to pull it back up. Danny hardly seems to notice Ronan's stumble. He's looking at a map on his phone, likely gauging how far they are from the spot where he was jumped. They are silent for the time it takes Ronan to reacquaint himself with gravity. Danny watches the gate, bated breath, and Ronan holds his chest, paces his breathing, relaxing whatever invisible limb allows him to fly. Flying feels like it stretches a muscle, though Ronan doesn't know what muscle or where it is in him or how closely bound it is to the raw, rearranged fibers of his breasts. He has looked up anatomical drawings to try and find which muscle is closest to the place he strains when hovering off the ground, and Ronan has marveled, nauseated, at the construction of humans as one quilt of bloody segments yanking and pulling on one another. Perhaps it fascinates him because he knows on some level that human anatomy is something unrelated to him, the same way he can marvel at the body of Michelangelo's David or Sylvester Stallone. They are close and he is one of the same thing, but made different. Danny sits beside Ronan, or almost beside, on the other end of the bench, but he's most beside Ronan of anything in the park. He's quiet. He has the same etiquette as anyone Ronan has ever rescued, unsure of how to approach a vigilante, but sure they are a different breed and must be approached differently. 
We have, he finally laughs. We have a bed at work, whether you're... Ronan turns his head to watch him speak, a breath sucked in from the old habit of trying to turn a convex body concave. There were no issues with his surgery, no comments from doctors on unseemly glowing alien cores in his chest, no secret fifth pectoral muscle, and nobody thought to ask Ronan, could he fly? He had a mind to say it exactly once, opened his mouth, and nothing came out. Things were hard enough as it is. There was nowhere on the, inform on the insurance form to say, I am not like you in more ways than one. Danny has gone quiet. You don't talk, he says eventually, having realized his hero would have left by now if he could. You've never talked to anybody. Ronan holds steady in Danny's direction for a thought and then looks away, trying to look kind in his negligence to answer, but firm too. Danny is already wondering too much without a show of empathy. Danny inhales. I don't need your permission to talk, Ronan cuts in. Danny frowns and then asks quietly, can you read minds? No, Ronan says, but I know when someone is about to tell me I'm safe with them. Don't bother with all that. I'm sure you... There are sprigs of hair twisting every which way on Danny's head, where someone had dragged their fist in and tried bringing his face to their knee. The only physical evidence, no cut, no bruise, no proof, no luck. Holy fuck, how is Ronan meant to take six weeks off for the sake of having no tits? It's not like it's, he was slow enough tonight, a bad fight, no fight. He can't even ask the doctor, do I have wings? Were you hurt? Danny asks, addressing Ronan's hand over his chest on the place where there will be swelling, where the face of a rescued boy impressed on his heart. Ronan shakes his head. This is another thing, he says. From your real life? Yeah, yeah. We should get you a taxi. How will you get home? I know the Irish thing is for you to beg me a thousand times to take a taxi, but don't start, and I'll be fine. He doesn't start, and Ronan has half an hour before the last bus home. His chest still aching, Ronan tries alternating pressure, lowering his hand onto the bench where Danny unceremoniously takes it in his own and fumbles to link their fingers. Ronan inhales. I think so, Danny cuts in. Yeah. It's been two years since someone held Ronan's hand. As much as his mind tries to linger on that sad lapse of time, it can't find purchase, plunged instead into the deep, brilliant euphoria that this has happened at all. The invisible limb stretches out, but Ronan doesn't fly or lift from the seat. It reaches around to rest lightly on Ronan's chest. It quells the pain in the scar tissue. It wraps him gently in the quilt of being human, and it keeps his hand free to squeeze Danny's hand back. It is my real life, he says, isn't it? On second thought, you can pay for the taxi. <laughs> Thanks very much. That was a, a magical piece of writing, really. I was, I was sitting in there in, in Stephen's Green with you, you know, that was great. It's great. Thank you very much. Um, so, Tommy Trumbugarag, go Ever Ap Glyn. So, we know St. Aaron at all, such a better ass Dorfi Alam de Aher Art, Agus Alam Aher Shoot, Agus Alam Aher Shoot, and Vichslinner be, there used to be no surnames in Ireland. So, Gorkarina Felaher in West Kerry at the moment, there's a guy called, I'm just trying to get this right now, Pardy Fide Fat Fat Fad. Oh, Murder Hertig. So, all of his antecedents were called a different form of Padrig or Pat or Pats or Fad and all that. Um, but I suppose that's going out now, which is kind of a shame because it's a funky way to be named, you know, rather than just having a first name and a surname. It's like they're, they're, they're kind of a bit anonymous. Uh, but I suppose that way of naming localizes things, you know, and you know where people seed and breed. Um, 
Ach, uh, here today we have uh, Ivor Apglin. Uh, uh, Ivor was telling me that uh, Ap is, is Mock, our son, you know. Uh, so uh, many uh, uh, Welsh surnames would have that in. And it's coming back into fashion that people are calling themselves after their uh, father or mother, possibly. So Ivor Apglin is Ivor uh, the son of Glyn, and Glyn was your dad. Yeah. And what are your kids called? What are their sur surnames, as it were? Ap Ivor. Or just Ivor, okay. Um, so, um, Wales, I suppose, Lysham Rathen Vyog, there's a kind of at, you know. I always thought that, um, well, actually, I didn't think at all, but uh, I, I remember seeing, uh, reading that Welsh, or a form of Welsh, was kind of what was originally spoken in uh, the rest of the island next door. I never kind of thought of that. Um, uh, that basically when, I suppose, the Ang Angles and the Saxons came in, they kind of pushed whatever language, Proto-Welsh or whatever, uh, further west. Um, and that some of the people that escaped that invasion, I suppose, uh, ended up in Brittany, and that's why Brittany is called Britain E. Um, and so Breton is, I suppose, related to Welsh. Is that right? Yeah. Am I making that up? I think that's fascinating. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, I'm almost 50 and I only found this out last year. <laughs> so there's hope for us yet. Um, but Tukter and Bratton Vyog er in Bratton Vyog. Wales is called, I suppose, Little Britain in Irish, which is kind of weird. But then again, uh, in, in Irish, uh, you call... Um, England, Sosna, you don't call it, you, you don't call, you, you don't, um, sorry, British is not a term that's widely used in Irish. Will Cartagum, Angus, like you'd call, you'd say Sidery Sosnacha, you know, English soldiers, you wouldn't say, I think there's a term Britannacha, but it kind of doesn't, it just doesn't, it stays in your mouth and then falls out and you step on it. Um, I don't mean that in a rude way. I just mean it's, a, it's not a nice sounding word. This is, where is this going? Um, <laughs> but yeah, but Wales and Ireland have a kind of a long hidden history, I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know why it's hidden. Maybe the languages, maybe the sea, but um, Bronwyn married, uh, uh, who was a Welsh princess, maybe. She married uh, an Irish king. I think he came over to Wales looking for a wife. And, uh, and Bron, I think, uh, who is, was Bronwyn's brother, uh, agreed with him that he should marry Bronwyn. Am I getting this right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Bronwyn married an Irish king and, uh, he came, and they came back over to Ireland and uh, nothing but disaster followed. Everybody died on both sides. There was only six pregnant women, Irish women left who were enslaved in Wales, I think, and only seven Welsh people left in Ireland after all the slaughter. And they both kind of swapped a bit and somehow or other magically repopulated both countries. Um, there was also a giant, I think, Bran was a giant, wasn't he? Yeah, Bran was a giant, so he just kind of walked across the Irish Sea the way you would. Saying, oh, there's the ferry there. Um, so, yes, but Wales and Ireland have a long history, and I suppose the, the surname Branach, which is the way it's said in Munster, I suppose, uh, or Branach, uh, which is the way it's said in Connemara, um, is, means Welsh. So, uh, and, and the surname Branach, or Branach, is, I suppose, transliterated or translated uh, as Walsh. It's spelt Walsh. But everybody says Welsh. Does anybody say Welsh, really? No? 
mostly in Munster they say Welsh. So yeah, there was a poet called Padraig uh, um, O'Malley uh, um, from Waterford who went and, wor- and dug coal in the Welsh mines um, at the beginning of the last century. And he wrote an amazing long piece of poetry describing that time there. And he was heavy into the unions and he was uh, striking and everything. But he came back to Ireland uh, and he was the guy that wrote Sliav Gal Gua Nanesha. Do you know that song? It was a classic song. You know that one? It's lovely. It's kind of like the first pop hit we had 100 years ago. Um, I'm rambling too much. Um, Ivor Aplin is the national poet of Wales since uh, 2016 and has won two crowns at the Welsh National Eisteddfod. He has performed his work all over the world and is grateful for this opportunity to return to Ireland again. He has worked on many Welsh-Irish collaborations in the fields of television and theatre as well as poetry, including the trilingual theatre pieces Frangach and Bronwyn which toured in Wales and Ireland. Most recently, he performed The Empty Chair on Chahir Olive in Dublin and Belfast in 2017. Uh, Ivar was brought up in the Welsh community in London, but now lives and works in Carnarvon. Kurigi Falte Riv Ivar. Well, Goramun Mahagat. I'm never sure around, around the etiquette around these things. It's a bit like a toilet seat, you know, you do leave it down. And, you know, I'm going to leave it up, so f- forgive me if I re- forget to put it down afterwards. Um, yeah, uh, if you, if another, another book you might want to check out um, uh, in, in Irish about Wales is, is uh, Shosef Magrian, uh, well, his Mavalachain and Brotten Vilk. So, it's Misha Ivraplin, as you already know. Um, um, filler, filler, na shunta, na bratten, na bigger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, time, uh, ansasta, ave ansha, uh, i, uh, i vela litrechta, idr na shunta, balichlia. Um, and I have a few poems for you. Now then, um, I had a bit of a fight with my, uh, laptop, uh, so I was unable to avail myself of the projection facilities. So uh, if you're not sitting near a, a white piece of paper with a bunch of random poems in English, please, please, please go, go reach one now. There are, there are plenty of spares around in the, in the adjacent seats. Um, there you go. Uh, and maybe, uh, Mr. Lighting Technician, maybe we can have just a spot more light on the audience, because otherwise you'll be holding a piece of paper in your hand in the dark. And you won't have a clue, because be me a leave me me chuid dante as bratnish, agus marshin be kahi kahitu na na PC paper a a bunch you side as or something like that. You'll need you'll need the translations. You'll need the translations. Will any ansha at a bratnish again? Well, I don't know. Dublin has changed. Last time I came in, I'm sure, I'm sure the half the audience spoke Welsh. Anyway, what's going on? Okay, well, the, the, first, uh, the first poem I'd like to do is about... I'll try and sell that later. Um, the first poem I'd like to do is also about flying, uh, but not through um, 
not through, uh, what do you call it, supernatural, not through uh, supernatural means, um, but flying from, uh, from North Wales to South Wales in a little tiny bumpy plane. Uh, and it was written, uh, there's a date underneath the poem. The poem's called Elevation, so if you can locate that on one side or t'other of the paper. Uh, it was written on the day of the last, last but one referendum we had in Wales when the people of Wales decided to affirm the earlier decision to embrace uh, a measure of self-government and indeed to extend it, which was a happy day. Yesterday, of course, we had a very different vote and today is not a particularly happy day. But anyway, in memory of a happier day, the poem is, uh, yeah, as I say, it's called Elevation. It's a kind of love poem to Wales and the, the significance of the, the cross at the end, of course, is, is the vote. Trwy hedfan dros Gymru, mae dysgu ei charu. Hongian yn araf i'w chi ffen, ei hydnabod o onglau anghyfarwydd. A rhwng cellwair y cymyl a blewgeifr, dacw benryn llun fel llawes a dorchwyd ar fris. Dacw geian gotyma blair am ddirgelwch y mynydd wedi pwyth-o'n gain gan y cloddiau. Dacw lechyn domeni wedi cripo o'r tir fel hoel bysydd trwy'r tywod. A'r synnoedd bychyn llachar fel mana geni cyfrin yn hael yr hwyr. Ac wrth drwyno ffenast yr awyrrain heno, mae'r gweddysau'n mynu adrodd padar yr enwa. Dyfu jyncsiwn, cors fochno, ath anal fel sifrwd caro'r dros i chorff. Dowlais, penrys, gilfach goch, Ac wrth iddi gau swyldo dan len, mae cysgod yr awyren yn symud fel croes dros y cymyla gwynion, yn sws a'r lythu'r carir oesau, yn bleidlais dros ei fyrhad. Diachor. Something a little lighter now. Scrive me and Don Shah. Oh, Fihiblian, Fihiblian, Kuig, Kuig, or Hin, nor V, nor 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 yeah, nor Dish Agma Mawak. I wrote this 25 years ago when my son was only one years old, and at the time I was not much older myself, and uh, looking, looking forward to being able to do, you know, crazy things with my boy once he was just a, you know, just a little bit bigger. And so this, this, is, this is a poem uh, looking forward to all the crazy things we'd be able to do. But it, of course, in some ways, it's a prophecy because, of course, by the time he was old enough to do the crazy things, I was totally clapped. Um, so it's a, it's, in some ways, it's a happy poem. In some ways, it's a sad poem. Uh, and, and it's called Rhiwdydd, uh, which in English is Someday. So the poem's called Someday. Rhiwdydd, pan fyddi yn gwybod y gwahaniaeth rhwng bita de ginio a'i wisgo, pan na fydd angen fy nwylo i dy sadio, fe wnawn ni syrffio ar ben byrdda Burger King yn Moscow. Rhiwdydd, Fe wnawn ni groesi'r afon traffic sydd yn hynafon, gan o car, drwy lanu o do car i do car. 
I'm not going to mangle any more Irish. Um, it's <laughs> this, uh, this, the, right, this is a poem. The poem is um, called Settling for the Night. We have one word for that in Welsh, Noswilia. It's uh, much easier. Um, what were you talking about earlier, about uh, things that were borrowed into... Oh, yes, that was the things I was thinking. Oh, we can mention this. Uh, Sassana, England, of course. Uh, we have a different word, Lleikr, but the people of England are Saison. One is a Sais, a Sassanach is a Sais, and uh, the plural is Saison. And, of course, we love them very dearly, as I'm bound to say because there's a camera filming. <laughs> um, anyway... This, uh, yeah, this, this poem is, um, I suppose, takes as its jumping-off point the fact that all parents lie to their children. Um, my parents lied to me. Uh, my father would tell me that uh, the reason that the ice cream van is playing its chimes is to tell the little children that it's empty and on its way back to the depot. <laughs> and, of course, I believed him until I was 17. Anyway, um, the, the lie that we told our own children was rather more um, innocent, I like to think. Uh, we would, when they said, Oh, dad, dad, do you I can't sleep. Uh, we, would tell, we would tell them, No, no, of course, you can sleep. You will be able to sleep because I have sleeping dust. And then we would sprinkle the sleeping dust over, over their, their heads and then comb it down. And of course, when you comb it down, you shut their eyes. Aha, that was the secret of sleeping dust. But of course, um, the children have grown, and perhaps one day they will have to perform a similar office uh, for me. And so this is a poem looking ahead, perhaps, to that, that day, which is, of course, the part of the natural cycle of things. So to close, the ma noswilio, sha. Noswilio, settling for the night. Mein Vevod, Gadar Vengako, Waskari, Shuch Kuski, Drossi Lukit, Kinikai, 
trwy gribo'r cwsg i lawr yn dyner drwy wallt a dros i ddalcen. Nos da, dad. Nos da. Grandawaf ar y plant yn y natlu'r nos. Y pen y bach dan gwrlyd wedi mynd i rwla lle na allwn ddilyn, ond o lia dôn nhw'n ôl. Mae ser yw nos dragwyddol yn brithau gwalltia, a'i wyneba fel clocia ynghwyll y llofft. Mae boreia nhw fel pnawn i ni, a'i pnawnia nhw a wel ein noswylio ni. Rhyw pnawn sy'l tawel efallai a'r hael drwy'r bleind yn ystol ddi a'r wal fy llofft. A'r dyrna bach wedi troi yn ddwylo oedolyn fydd yn gwasgaru'r llwch cysgu dros fy llygyd cae ac yn ei gribo i lawr drwy fy ngwallt brithwyn. Nos da, dad. Nos da. Gwrmil ma hagaf gileir, ma hasiwyf sishis bedr, agos fwr blapi rhwna, ma fysi fegyn lehrys. So, nisha gwrma hagaf asyn ceol. So, Tani Hishaga Harling, this night is lovely. There's all kinds of everything in this room. Every kind of voice, every kind of idea, every kind of language, and it's just wonderful. What a wor wonderful world we're living in, you know? So, um, our, our, our special guest, uh, or another one of our special guests uh, this evening, um, we're going to introduce uh, Nicole Flattery. Um, Nicole Flattery's stories have been published in the Irish Times, the Dublin Review, the White Review, Winter Papers, The Letters Page, and The Stinging Fly. She's the recipient of the Next Generation Artists Award from the Arts Council and the White Review Short Story Prize. She lives in Galway, up Galway. Um, Show Them a Good Time is her first book. Please give it up for Nicole's uh, Flattery. Yeah. Hello. Is this? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, yeah, this is my first uh, book. It's a collection of short stories. And I'm going to read one of them, my first ever published story, um, for a little while, till the bell goes. <laughs> uh, it's called Hump. At 70, after suffering several disappointments, the first being my mother, the second being me, my father died. One evening he gathered the family in his room and asked if anyone had any questions. No one did. The next day he died. At the funeral, everyone looked like someone I might sort of know. These strangers told anecdotes and made general health suggestions to each other. I passed out the sandwiches. The sandwiches were cling-filmed and oddly perforated like they had been pierced again and again by cocktail sticks. I said Sambo to every single person in that room. It was a good word, a word I hope would get me through the entire evening. I wasn't strong on speaking or finding ordinary things to discuss in large groups. The place was crowded with false grief, people constantly moving positions like in an A&E, depending on the severity of their wounds. I mentioned that I held his wrist when he passed, and through the use of the phrase flickering pulse, I was booted up to first class. My father told me he regretted not talking more. He felt the time others used for conversation he had filled with snooker or nodding or looking away. He surmised through a mouthful of diabetic chocolate that he had only spoke 30% of his life. 
It was a dismal percentage, and I was familiar with what dismal percentages could do to a person. We were spending a lot of time together then, linking arms and being totally happy. I had this one trick I did for him. I curl up tight into his bed under the start sheets and peep out at the nurses like I was an old lady. It was a scream. They said I was their youngest patient. I laughed and asked them to leave the pills in a tidy arrangement on the bedside locker. My antics gained me a certain level of recognition and infamy in the retirement home, and at times I could feel my father almost bursting with pride. We both agreed it was the perfect trick for the occasion of his near death. I was good at gestures, but it was only in that function room when I spoke my sad but true stories in my fragile tone that I finally got the appeal of talking. I thought, this is what I'll be now, a talker. My career had taken a sinister turn and I'd started to keep an eye out like you do for a new lover for other things I could try. There weren't many. All jobs seemed to contain one small thing I just could not do. It was maddening. I told a number of stories about my father that evening. I was there, but I wasn't. My mind was mainly preoccupied with what I could do in my new life as a talker. I would be both stylish and intelligent, but also deeply affecting in my conversation. When that room of strangers looked up at me, I did not know if I wanted them to cry or to clap. It was in the shower where I found it first. I'd moved into my father's old house and sometimes would shower sitting down or sitting, on, sitting down on the stool that was installed for comfort or if I was feeling up to it, I would stand. The bathroom was filthy with intermittent flashes of what looked like the color peach. On sitting down days, I often crawled from one side of the room to the other. I could get away with this because I lived alone. It must have been a standing day as I realized I was a lot closer to the taps than I used to be. I was a lot closer to the hair on the taps. I was stooping over like I was playing the old lady in a celebrated stage production, except I was all scrunched up and very naked. I pressed my fingers below my shoulders and felt it shifting and furling, the hard roundness of it like a golf ball or a marble. I dressed myself quickly, being careful not to catch sight of it in the mirror. When I stood on the train that morning, my fingers gripping the rail above, I could feel it growing beneath my skin like a second layer of flesh. I worked in an office outside the city, and we all, the, we all had the appearance of people who had been brutally exiled. We shed our city cells, but lacking imagination, we had nothing to replace them with. Between the 40 of us, I think we could have made a complete person. I had been there six months, and it was probably the longest position I had ever held. None of it mattered, but I liked to pretend it did. If someone came in, I might say, come in. That was it. That was the whole script. It wasn't exactly spiritually fulfilling. Often I was so bored I couldn't hold a conversation. I walked around cubicles abandoning sentences. Whenever I entered the kitchen area, my colleagues left quickly and without warning. I think they were jealous because my desk got the most direct sunlight. I didn't understand them at all. I had a habit of thinking I was very unique and interesting. My one friend spent her days on the phone to the refuse collection. There had been a dispute over the bins. No one knew who started it, but the rubbish had not been collected in six weeks, and it was not a time for chit-chat, idle or otherwise. I wanted to tell Paula about my discovery, ask her had she noticed anything different about me, but all she did was place her hand over the mouthpiece of her phone and mutter sorry. She had married young and was squeamish about all sorts. I used my mornings to investigate what was wrong with me. I opened several internet tabs, each one containing something possibly wrong, and explored them all. In the afternoons, my boss came and sat at the edge of my desk like a hip teacher and tried on being a thoughtful man. He was always trying to sell me, sell me things that were allegedly good for me, almond butter, aloe vera juice himself. <laughs> His face was stupidly handsome and so symmetrical it made me roll my eyes to the ceiling. 
He wasn't perfect, though. I noticed he had a hidden aggressive streak, and at times I suspected he was responsible for the absent bin men. Also, he was not someone I went to for love and affection, and he was maybe better dressed than I would have liked. I had a lot of problems with him. He was obsessed with success. I felt I was under constant inspection, and he had a way of looking me up and down like I was a CV full of errors and misspellings. He was older, but it was hard to pin down anything precise. We went to a lot of dimly lit restaurants. Anytime I thought I got a handle on his age, he ordered another bottle of wine and it was gone again. We talked mostly about the office, the flies that we couldn't get rid of, the people we disliked, how we physically had to rent ourselves out of bed in the morning. Afterwards, we'd go back to his and he'd attempt one of his two and a half moves. He always fell asleep with both hands on my shoulders like we were in a conga line at a party. Conga, 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 honestly, I hated him. At first, I worried about it a lot. The worrying made my food come up and up. I came to resemble my father in the early days of his illness. I was surprised when I caught sight of my legs. How did they support me, I wondered. I had no idea, but I got high and giddy on the engineering of it. At lunchtime, I ate outside with Paula. The smell of the office forced us into the cold, and we sat together, shivering over our lunchboxes. Paula's lunch was made up by her husband and always contained the correct amount of protein and carbohydrates. I can't describe the empty feeling that went through me when I saw those food combinations. When I found the courage, I asked Paula if at any stage of her life she felt herself moving closer to the ground, if the chewing gum stains on the street were any clearer to her than they used to be. I think I'm becoming a hunchback, I confessed. Paula was adamant that I was not a hunchback, that my fundamental problem was that I used people to feel attractive. Paula wasn't interested in turning heads. She didn't want men to look at her. Anytime a man looked at her, she just picked up the phone and called the refuse collection. I think she was in love with the person at the other end of the line. Their conversations tended to be about Irish and beauty and not about bins at all. In a short space of time, Paula became quite a dangerous woman to know. Slowly, I moved my desk three inches away from hers. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone was very wonderful. Thanks for having me. That was really funny. Is it okay to say that? <laughs> yeah, I found that really funny. Thank you very much. Just the, I suppose, the minutiae of everything, the way you zoned in, every, you know, it was just all the little bits. Which is great. Thank you very much. Um, that was Nicole Flattery. Uh, showed them a good time, isn't it? Yeah. And is that in shops now? And do you have any copies here to sell? Ah, no. Uh, no. Every writer, or anybody who has anything published, always bring at least... One book you can flog for a fiver. That's today's message brought to you from Poverty Association. So, Fishing a Holling of Hard, Nish Tommy Tumbugaraig, Colum MacGarrell, will Colum and saw, or there, to Colum Hun PC in a Vangail Giba, Agasa Merlin, who Dahanga, or there. So, Colum MacGarrell performing spoken word pieces for nearly three years without a stop. That's difficult. No sleep or eating or anything. Okay, uh, won second prize in an All-Ireland uh, Slam Poetry event held last August in Belfast. Fela Liu Lunas, I was at that a couple of years ago. It was amazing, that Slam Festival. Uh, do you remember, Nisha? Yeah, it was great. Uh, so currently acting on Russ Naroon. So a soap star in the house. My God. Um, currently acting on Russell Rune with T.G. Cahar. Also just finished PhD in Irish history and tr- at Trinity. Dina Anna Ghanohu Kherfad. Lana Talling. Tarsus. 
Welcome, please, Colin McGarrett. Gormagov, the Malta, Aniasson. To my first piece, uh, for anyone who speaks Irish here, the word for exile in Irish is, is Doriacht. Um, and the title of this is kind of a play on that door eight. So it's um, it's a poem about the kind of the emotional costs of deciding to leave. Lorigim spas, aum dum hain, fuishev, shall be a garret come a chown or a gart. Fogum kehun lead a machri or your reacht is dora chafiacha a shilla wum. On kest four na, on botun buon I shall, no deshachoru. Deskagig, ni kur mar magig, eh, ach, mahemen number the stray and fader fillet. Better not, eh. Better go by show on kina amadoch, on bulla marafoch. Do lame to yak into ak, my agle, gun back into gakil, a dacker to kush on my ditch. Robuk ferrach, rebus minter, Buron sortish dachle printer, Fuskel farav, le kersa intner, Quivness marav, is me a squealy. Mishe a reg malavador. Lorgis and Brisha, Wumso Isha, Searsha full of Naknik is Glisha, on Vorog Fowl or Lorog Howl is Lorog Machina false lebra. Kestim on Will Ella Unumach, Amadon, a shrieve dawn, free craw, reag is Misha me, look at me, ha, Nis Tavok tea, nor craw, Agasasov, so Kushim boss or nahish. Akdar Machush is God me. Can elu on blush so plush go vanolish. Can liner yal reina havarm hain. Ach malain. Magrain tu gur tu at home can gur tu. Shine imparter our gadrev, eg padrev gur brisha shalladachesha. Eg sweenev, sekinev, sekinem vartiot, and lor magashiot can fleish of a hurt. Tom and Mort, it's a male, Gabresha, Derishkeel, Margarmisha, a hole on board on gay, is Gramisha her, Nashol, Sere, is Marnakulena, Ella, Lakushu, Akme. Megla, Elegan? Hasagum Nishnak me. Ramagath. So uh, the next piece. Uh, I don't know if other people come across it, but I've seen the world that I've been in. I've had a lot of people going like, oh, you're going through whatever, and they tell you, just a man up, just just man up, be a man, you know. And it just bothered me. It was just getting in my head. And so I took it literally as in man up, and I inverted it. And I wrote a poem called Man Down, and it's about a, a night where I was too drunk to get a boner. Um, so this is what this poem is about. <laughs> Your eyes shine bright. Two beacons of adulterists on adulterated light. Delight in the thoughts of a night filled with anticipation that I'll surpass your expectations. We met at the bar, not too far from your place, and I see in your face that look of, come get me. The ecstasy of what she expects me to share, our clothes laid bare once a kiss turns to mourn, then we bounce off the wall and slide to the floor, and she crawls on all fours and whispers, do you want me? Well, like a man on a mission, any upgrade from missionaries met with approval. The removal of all inhibitions which are kneeling leaves us both heaving and reeling. But as I failed to get hard, you tried to discard the feeling that you've overplayed your cards. A placid fool with his flaccid tool, I realised to my surprise that he is being uncooperative. <clears throat> Not fucking now, I say to myself. I want to shout, to dispel the doubt that I see creeping in your eyes. You start to feel shitty. You take this defect of mine as a sign that somehow this has to mean you're not pretty. 
Your head spins round and round as your thoughts become wound in this heartbreaking idea that my erection is somehow linked to your self-worth. I want to convince you and remind you of your beauty, but you're gone and mistakenly feel bound by some duty that I must be pleased. Fuck me. So you increase the effort, which increases the tension, not to mention the fact that what I lack is not desire. A fire burns like a lecherous pyre inside of me, but unfortunately, the six pints of Guinness and five double vodkas and whites are the only things stopping me from fighting the good fight. So I change tack. Have you lie on your back whilst I go down? And like Alibaba on his knees, I count one, two, three, think open sesame, and then dive deep into a plush of pleasure, being careful to respond measure for measure to every groan and turn and slow-release moan that until now hadn't happened for you. A reminder that the journey can be just as fun, not a battle to be won, but a ride in the truest sense of the word. And as your quick-breathed panting grows ever frantic, the death grip at arms clutching the bed reach down to touch the top of my head to pull me up and ask me to just fucking go for it. <sighs> but the burden of knowledge falls heavy on me as I see and despise the truth of mine eyes that I have been found wanting tonight. So I feel like shite. Because... Like Nelson's pillar, no longer standing tall, I have to look up with the full wherewithal and try to spell the disappointment I see. Sorry, but tonight, it's just not meant to be. Rangov. How much time do I have? Do I have time for one small one? All right. Um, this one, I, uh, I just, I, it was the first poem I ever wrote. Um, and it was about, uh, I woke up one day and I was just feeling really bad. I got woken up about four in the morning by basically by depression. And was, I looked across my room and I saw a picture of Untrur de Fair, some mountains down by me in Corchine, and it made me feel better. And so this is a, a sharp piece about that. So it's called Untrur de Fair. The Knuxen Ei, Makon Gosta, Trur de Fair, Kriana Shan, Bartis Bulte, Le Kochta Nishke, Akshasavok Foskamwerga. Agus dumsum hiasuf eg farid na farige eg brisha of roch na kariga borne, bishok keshfur ar linne os mechora mach. The chas no roha intlacha, no fiechel inlacha, heg melt machlegin. His dumpig and pictur marisha, stacherum hain. His cleanum rave, carousa sieve, sitacum border, shave all in all the geishtuk, lest the mere no troig. Dation lest the skilt a boy, dost the shanner sheen to a gold no bean to segood the rashling eam whole fe. See saw, maddy rava. Nevoga do castabonos cune, nagas me for your reacht, nashkeliacht old. Kanahev. <laughs> Rainhig gay agus tida an tiltu. Ak shas. Shas. Fan id hiasif. Is tour from the Kosselat. Shinoel. Fan intin. Ak shin shliel el nerar hli. Like fan intin. Na skil na madi lesro. Um... Well, Shan Naharla Gurav to kind free 
the Hlat na Riblig Martyr for another Hoshin to Gominic na Nilfak Nis Massa and Buddha na Hasaba, his lair, Gul Redegnel and Nis Massa Fos. Ach, ach, so Murachson, Birin Nivendon, not Hoshin's good to go to play with. Nothing later, Buddha near Vardever, Tastuik Talo and Robinsus as Inish Tushkirt. Nahuel, is later Buddha near Vardever, nothing later. Will it's a good? Yeah. Ach, er, oh, 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 Cassia Gadden Gilmartin, excuse me, is a recent graduate of Trinity's MPhil in creative writing and now divides her writing be time between short stories and a debut novel. Uh, a serial arts intern, that sounds like a disease or something, is it? Um, do, do you go to the doctor for that or something? And I've just got a case of the serial arts interns. Um, a serial arts intern, she has worked for the Irish Writers' Centre, Dublin Book Festival and GCN, which is Gay Community News. Her short fiction has been published in Banshee, Transnational Queer Underground. I don't know how to say that word. Eunonia? No. Say that? Eunonia. Excuse me. Eunonia Review and the Bookends Review. Please welcome Cassia Gilmartin. Critique Falter Impey. Hello. Thanks for being here. I'm going to read a piece from my short story, Different Islands. Thanks. Left at the roundabout, Cecilia says. Rachel takes the left off a roundabout with beds full of red and yellow flowers, though her instinct was to go straight ahead. On the way through, she sees a road sign labelled Tost. They're going the right way and she tries not to let that disappoint her. Two hours have passed since they left Dublin, and though Rachel has been this way before, she's relying at this stage on directions from Celie's phone. None of the turns have come where she thought she remembered them. They're on their way to Atle Island, but as Rachel used to go there every summer with her family, visiting a friend of her mother's, the woman sold things made from seashells, jewellery, ornaments, a little figure of a mouse that Rachel, as a child, got from her as a present and kept for years in her room. The mouse wore a tweed suit and a bow tie and had tiny black glasses perched on its nose. The woman's dead now and Rachel doesn't know if anyone kept her shop open. They have it on a baby blanket too. Celie's looking at something on her phone, pinching the screen to bring the image closer. Ever since Rachel told her about that mouse, she's been looking at pictures of craftwork from the island. This, though, is the first time she's found something to give to the child they're planning for. What do they have? Rachel asks. They're back on the N5, with no turns to worry about for a while. The road goes on for as long as Rachel can see, lined with evenly spaced trees that grow out of openings in the pavements. The leaves flitter in the sunlight. She can tell how fast she's driving 
from the speed of the trees disappearing behind her. And she tries to think of nothing but the sight of them disappearing Twitter and Twitter. The rainbow fish, Celie says. She means the design from the fleece shop's website, Rachel realises. The one they found earlier on a lady's jacket. A fish in striped fabric with a bright blue eye and scales sewn on one by one. Celie said that if they found the shop on Atle, she might buy one. Growing up, Rachel always had one of those fleeces. Every time she drew out of the one she had, her parents would buy her another. She remembers tudding at the jackets on the lowest rail when she was too small to reach the others, stepping in between the hannies and letting herself be tovered up. They're picking up speed. Outside, trees flash by them. I like the fish, she says. She does. She thinks it's stales, bumps of soft fabric sticking out from the rest of the softness will feel good to touch. Something in her can see the baby light in it too. Small findlies testing out those bumps. Findlies that don't know how it feels to touch things yet. We could all match. Celie reaches out to brush a hand against her leg. It's only a joke, but something still tightens inside her. Matching clothes don't make sense for the place they're going. Not for the windswept cliffs. Not for the beaches where she went out to let in shells as a kid and found only broken pieces all the time. That song won't stop playing in her head today. The one by Simon and Darfontel about another Cecilia, a woman who can't be pinned down. Every time Rachel thinks of her partner's full name, it feels like a warning. She wants to have a baby, but she's not sure she can have one with her Cecilia. And she doesn't know which should take priority, the child or the woman. There's something about the way Celie delights at things, about the way one source of delight fades away when a new one makes itself known. Let's hope they have it in the shop, she says. Her mind is laden with images. Celie and Lanzarote picking out jewellery made of lava and olivine. Celie and Marrakesh picking up bright hand-woven throws for the touches. Celie on Crete not buying anything, but soaking up the sun, taking it home in the burnished brown of his skin. They've been around the world, seen all the new places Celie chose, and this is to be their last trip before trying for a baby. A shorter, cheaper trip to somewhere that belongs to Rachel this time. A thank you, Celie told us, and a chance for Rachel to gather her strength before setting into the trials of pregnancy. She remembers what Celie said on the beach at Sandy Mount last week, when they agreed to rent a cottage on Atle, near Teal Strand. I like you on beaches. As if Rachel were part of the landscape, its most beautiful, most treasured part. This isn't a place that makes you beautiful, she wants to say. Your hair tangles and your lips chap until they bleed. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Pretty seductive piece. It was amazing, amazing. Uh, Cassie Gilmartin. So I did too much talking before, so we were running out of time. So shut up, me. Um, so Ncheadna Elena Chandrika Narayanan Mohan. Chandrika is an arts manager and a writer from India, living in Dublin. Kurgi Falter Impi. Hi there. Allow me to make an introduction. I am smiling because I can highly function on wounded birds and spark plug repairs. These are the cogs going spare when I hand you my business card and instill confidence. The work I touch turns to gold and I don't have to be quiet about it, so I shout and I shout and I let it all out because work is a thing that I can't do without because it makes me feel worthy and wanted and loved by strangers because the dangers of real intimacy scare me way more than accountancy. So why can't I, map-minded, apply the formula for a business life to me, find like-minded individuals who make me feel at home in myself, to co-achieve, co-love, co-produce friendship? What a collaboration that would be, a grand production. Hey, look what we made, isn't it great? I want to show off how I feel right now, but then I guess it's a performance, not an internal reevaluation, accounting of stock and inventory that's being ticked off box by box. I want to be well in all capitals, so I can be in YouTube videos about how I won against depression. Go me. See if I can do it, so can you. Thumbs up, wink. Okay, kids, don't do drugs unless you want to. So where is my certificate of trying hard? I want a handshake every time I don't hate myself, a pat on the head when I clean a single dish, a thank you for not being abusive today would be great, thanks. Take your time, I'm here all day, not going anywhere. No, it's fine, it's all in my head, I breathe. Traffic signs stop. I want to swim in a calm of my own making. I want to take bad news without shaking or smoking eight cigarettes in one sitting and crying myself hoarse, unslept, unkempt. I want a brain as organized as my desk with a to-do list I can tick off where I can chart my progress, mapped, monitored, reported, quantitative results, organized alphabetically, sorted, but today it's just a series of palpitations that tell me that today isn't okay. An absence of swollen eyes that tells me that today is. Today is. It exists. And the time, number of times I tried not to when I planned my way to a watery grave where the black turquoise freeze would squeeze me out of my own room, I would give myself to the land that fed me sadness, and I would be part of your sand getting everywhere, stuck in people's pants as a last revenge from the afterlife. All the times I felt like an inconvenience, at least this time it would be on purpose. But goddamn the fight in me. The low hit points, but the urge to battle. I was, built, I was never built to quit, but built to be hit repeatedly by circumstance and by my own fist. Still battered, still stitched, my patchwork quilt heart still beats, sometimes too loud, sometimes barely, and sometimes rarely it beats just for me. And when it does, I smile at the world, I really do. And there's that streak of dusty sunshine that tells me today, it's fine, and thanks, I'm fine. How are you? Um, I write a lot of love poems for Dublin, so here's one of them. This is called You City, You Boyfriend. Seated awkwardly on a wooden box, we're on the last of my cigarettes, my fifth in two hours. He talks and talks and talks, and my replies are only punctuation for his next sentence. Across from a grey slab tower, the city smirks, raises an eyebrow as if to say, you know I'm so much better than him. 
And you're right, because when we converse through the choke of soft air, we exhale each other in whispers on a walk home where a smile has broken my face from the realization that yes, you are better than him. You're better than all of them because you push up through my thin soles and I feel every pebble when I am treading across your tire bump skin and I feel embedded in you, you city, you boyfriend, you dusty hug. And when I tell you that you're beautiful, you blush across the canal even though you already know that gray glamour suits you and you don't need to be told. I wear you like an arm across my shoulder and when the wind pushes my hair back, I don't need an errant hand across a cafe table to push it aside. Like me, you play your cards close to your chest, but when we mourn, we crack and the rain pummels onto the pavements and across a million cheap umbrellas. So take me in and make me yours, because I've already let the pollen in my pores anoint me to an orchestra of rustling leaves and seagull song, and one day I will take thee to be my lawful wedded home, and I shall wear a dress of summer fog and a ring of past lives, and you will smile and shrug, and in your humid indifference, I will vow to love you anyway, because I'm a hopeless romantic, and you're a city that keeps its own name. Thank you. Dublin can be heaven at six o'clock or seven as you stroll through Stephen's Green. Is it? Um, anyway, Sam Cook, our last young writer delegate, is a long-form journalist and non-fiction writer. He has worked as a features editor with Trinity News as well, uh, as, well as written for the Dublin Enquirer, TNT, TN2 Arts Magazine and Uncusentor. His topics of interest have ranged from science communication to experiences within the health system to life on Irish islands. He studies psychology at Trinity College Dublin, Cúrgí Fáilte Sam Cox. Hi everyone. Um, so this is a shortened uh, version actually of an essay uh, that I wrote and it's called um, uh, The Colour of Gossip. So, what is the colour of gossip? What kind of chatter tastes sweet and what leaves a bit of residue? Does the dark brown in your cup share the same earthy aroma as the coffee that it shades? These questions sound like the musings of a child because they don't fit into our established sensory framework. They're the thoughts of someone who hasn't quite figured out how the world works, but is still toying with the rules. True, we evoke cross-sensory metaphor, saying that colour is too loud for a room, when really what we mean is that it's visually intrusive. We say unkind words or guilty admissions leave a sour taste in our mouth. But do they literally? Orange isn't actually warmer than blue, is it? For the majority of the population, the answer is no. For synesthetes, that line is blurred, mixing to form a brew of senses less defined than our traditional concepts predict. For these people, metaphor becomes reality, and individual differences in perception take on new proportions. Synesthesia is a neurological condition where the senses go beyond their parameters, creating a concoction of experience. Colours can have tastes and textures. Sounds can evoke images and aromas. First noted in the 19th century, synesthesia pokes at one of our most fundamental questions in philosophy and psychology. How universal is our experience of the world? If your yellow tastes like pineapple or reading San Francisco of avocado toast, how can we say we're seeing the same thing? What's more, how would we ever know the difference? This considered, it becomes clear why it wasn't discovered until so recently, despite estimates predicting it affects two to 4% of the population. That means one in 25 of us taste, sound, hear, color, and smell texture. 
What's more, one of the major research centres into this population is Dublin. So as dusk approached, a crowd of neuroscientists, art enthusiasts and interested members of the public stood outside of the chapel, awaiting a novel experiment. Located in the heart of the university, the group were attending a unique piano recital that aimed to explore the limits of communication and the boundaries of our inner worlds. Focusing on the synesthetic experience of pianist Dr. Rudenko and painter Timothy Layden, the live recital attempted to convey what it looked and felt like for the senses to mix. As Rudenko took centre stage reciting Debussy and Brahms, Layden painted the music. His brush lifted and fell, and the notes began to take shape on his coloured canvas. Black lines appeared along the corners of the page, reminiscent of birds against a waning sky. As the pieces changed, so too would his canvas, and the painter quickly worked into a sweat, keeping pace with Rudenko's nimble fingers. Debussy, as it turned out, was filled with a manic energy, a series of slashing and shifts of colour through reds, oranges and yellows. As the piece faded, so too did Leyden's energy, taking time to relax both into the music and into his own art. Moving on to Brahms, Rudenko rose from the stool, took a bow and shuffled her sheet music. Ignoring the help of her attendant, both artists were entirely enfolded in this experience. Leyden, slightly obscured behind his easel, swapped his canvas once more and in doing so, his style. Where Debussy had been ethereal, Brahms was geometric and vaguely cubist. Switching brushes to better capture this, the amount of thought that had gone into Leyden's communication was telling of the difficulty he had experienced in bridging the gap between his world and those he was painting for. But here was one of the central problems in describing synesthesia. It's poetry. The mixing of the senses simplifies both process and perspective to the point of being meaningless. It was too easy to confine the experience to a broader metaphor of our differences in mind. While sitting in the chapel, the varying perspectives of the world were both incredible but downright disconcerting. After all, if Leyden showed such difference in these compositions as geometric rather than the gentle floating of notes, how could I share in the moment with the crowd gathered? Yet, here lay more than a metaphor. It was and is the reality for many and couldn't be reduced to a concept to impress upon an audience. Why do some senses mix and not others? Do some synesthetes share associations with some internal logic or are the crossovers completely random? a result of arbitrary neurological connection? Are these changes stable across a lifespan? For instance, would the comforting flavours or gentle hues of a favourite musician shift as the result of startling accusations against them? But more than questioning these fundamentals, researchers record and convey experience. Accounts of synesthetes range from garnishing meals through reading the newspaper to words forming observable writing, spilling from their mouth as if a comic book character. Like the many brushes accompanying Leyden, the researchers aim to facilitate this communication of perception. Hardly a binary confined to an us versus them, neurotypical versus neurodiverse, the reality is a spectrum of differences, most pronounced in 1 in 25. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for coming uh, to our special guest, Ivor. It's been great meeting you for the first time. Big hug across the Irish Sea. Um, uh, and to Nicole Flattery as well, uh, our, our uh, other special guest. Thank you very much to our uh, young writer delegates and to all our performers uh, this evening. Uh, um, Dublin Writers, uh, the Irish Writers Centre uh, will have another one of these evenings in July, isn't it? Yeah. So um, stay in touch, sign up for the newsletter. 
get information, network, do stuff. Um, so just follow me, Shivla, please the topic. Um, uh, the, my favorite music show is on Tev Tuhul on Arnaji on Radio Nagelchte. It's it's often driven me home, and um, uh, and it was celebrating its twentieth year on air, which is remarkable. It's just I suddenly realised how old I was. But um, uh, so anyway, uh, so I just wrote this on Twitter just as a uh, uh, I love you, Kino Kivine, and your radio program. And it's not a poem as such, but this is celebrating weird music, I suppose. Made this up last night. Shouldn't she Thanks very much. Fair play to you all.